Like I said, we're going to deviate. Uh, we normally, in the past, have opened with a prayer. Uh, as much as we could, we tried to find scientifically uh, approved prayers. Mm -hmm. And uh, so anyway, we're going to deviate. Micah? Yeah, we're going to do our uh, talk a little bit about science first, and then we're going to pray together. So um, what I wanted to talk about... Nope, I'm on the wrong thing here. Uh, what I want to talk about uh, for a few minutes is the Artemis uh, II project. Has anyone heard of this? Okay, we got some back row people who've heard of it. Uh, great. Uh, somebody. Yes. Okay. What else? What else can you say about it? That's true. Yeah. Okay. Let's talk about it. So Artemis II uh, mission back in April, um, NASA announced. Um, the crew of of this uh, of this project, and um, so this there's four people on this crew, and as um, as mentioned, um, the pilot of this mission is Victor Glover, and uh, Victor Glover is uh, he's a he's a um, Navy pilot. He's done something like four thousand hours of of airtime. He's had this um, incredible military career. And then in the last few years, he's become an astronaut and he's, um, he was on the SpaceX Dragon flight to intercept the International Space Station. He spent 168 days in orbit um, doing experiments and things like this. He's done four uh, moonwalks. And as alluded to, he is a committed Christian, a longtime Church of Christ member in, um, in Houston. Uh, a family man, and um, yeah, just successful in, in all kinds of ways. And so he's an interesting character. And I've spent, uh, this is him uh, on the International Space Station, doing some moonwalks, things like this. Um, and, and what he's doing is he's going to be piloting the Artemis II um, project. So the Artemis um, project, uh, Artemis One actually launched, um, I believe, in 2022. And what it, it was an unmanned launch of this new spacecraft system, the Orion. And um, the attempt is to see, well, not to see. The attempt is to get us back to the moon. And so the Orion uh, project, the Artemis project with the Orion uh, spacecraft is um, is America's first moon uh, uh, mission since the Apollo uh, missions 50 years ago, right? This is uh, America's, uh, like I said, the, their uh, first attempt to get us back to the moon 50 years, and this is the 72. Um, and the, the Apollo 1, they basically sent out the ship unmanned. They circled the moon and basically tested this whole new platform. Does this work? Can we control this? All this kind of stuff. Artemis II project is our manned mission. And so this is what uh, this should launch next year. And this is kind of a map of the, the mission and uh, the stages in it. But basically, they're going to circle and they're going to do a flyby of the moon. They're, and the process, they're going to go farther out into space than any human has ever gone before. And um, they will return to Earth, and um, 
if all goes well, then that same crew will head out on the Artemis III and set up a permanent moon base uh, near the South Pole. That's the plan. And the plan is to spend basically the rest of this decade establishing a permanent um, set of infrastructure for America to have a, um, a home, a launch pad, all kinds of things like this on the moon where we can do projects and ultimately launch us um, to Mars. And so this is the, the, the project, the moon to Mars. Um, uh, and, and so basically, uh, the first, Artemis I, first human spacecraft to the moon in the 21st century. Uh, Artemis II, first humans to orbit the moon in the 21st century. Uh, and then they have several things before Artemis III, crewed mission to land on the lunar surface. And so that, that team, including Victor Glover, should be the first uh, Americans to walk on the moon uh, this century, this millennia. Uh, is the new Space Force going to put it, insert itself into this? I have no idea. Uh, I do not know, and I'm not sure what their... Um, or has there been any more movement to, to make space uh, non-military? Um, Hmm. I would say probably the other way around, like right. So, um, uh, I think people are increasingly realizing the the military significance of it. At the same time, I think there is a large, widespread um, acknowledgement that uh, that we need a um, non-militia force in space. Um, uh, we need to keep the moon and the International Space Station and all these kinds of things as international. Uh, projects and so um, one of the members of the Artemis uh, two crew is actually Canadian. So a lot of these things are international collaborations already. The International Space Station, international cl uh, collaboration. Victor Glover spent uh, time, like I said, 168 days up there um, working on that. So yeah, this is the aim uh, of the Artemis uh, project. It seems to be moving along quite well. Uh, they're in the training phases right now for the, the um, Artemis II mission um, next year. And yeah, if all goes well, then uh, within a few years, we will have um, a base back on the moon. We will have people operational on the moon and uh, we will be building towards a larger presence in space um, doing scientific work, right? That's the aim here. So I think um, I've listened to some of uh, Victor Glover's uh, conversations about his faith, and I find it really interesting. Um, so he sees um, the moon mission and the Mars mission as part of what it is to be human. He says pushing ourselves to explore is just core to who we are. It's part of being a human. That's our nature. We go out there and we explore to learn about where we are, why we are, understanding the big questions about our place in the universe. The exploration we're doing is the first few steps along the path of getting humans to Mars. I think his understanding of faith um, actually plays a big role in here. I think it was Buzz Aldrin who said, many of us see what we're doing as part of God's eternal plan. And um, I think that Victor Glover sees it similarly. And so in talking about um, when, you know, his, he's envisioning this work, he's already spent a lot of time in space, he's, he's gone through this process, um, he sees prayer as being a big part of, of this effort, 
And I think if you listen to him talk, he talks about, he talks like a pilot. He's very concerned about the responsibility that he's taking on in these kind of missions. So he talked about what he's going to do when they launch this project next year. He's going to pray. And he said, not only will I be praying, but I will also be listening. And this is part of it for him. He says, I know that God can use us for his purposes. When Jesus was teaching the disciples to pray, he used that very specific prayer that we all know. Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. So listen, I am a messenger of his kingdom. His will be done. I think he's saying here, he's grappling with the fact that he believes this is in some sense a divine calling, a divine mission, that humans are intended to be spreading out like this, exploring and discovering. And so all the risk and the responsibility and the danger that he's taking on in this is something that he is relying on God uh, for and to understand how to navigate. And so his reading of the Lord's Prayer, I think, is just so profound. He is saying, like, this, I'm accepting God's mission. I'm accepting um, God's calling. I'm being an agent of God's kingdom. And that's the prayer that, um, for him, will be carrying them uh, to the moon and beyond. So I'd like to pray that together. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory forever. Amen. It says on earth as in heaven, not on Mars. Well, <laughs> yeah, no, no. Uh, true, I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, um, yeah. I'm going. I'm going to fast forward uh, through this. Unfortunately, I don't think we have enough time to to uh, cover this. I want to ask this question, and I'm going to apologize for the um, the grotesqueness here. Does anyone recognize this image? Okay, can you, do you know any, huh? what? does anyone know the uh, story that's going on here? Okay, yep, yep, anyone remember the name? Prometheus, yes. All right, so somebody tell me this story. This is, this is a picture of Prometheus. Somebody tell me what's, what has led to what is being depicted here. Yeah, that's right. So Prometheus is a god who has stolen fire from the gods and brought it to humans. And as punishment for his rogue criminal action, he has been condemned by the gods to be chained um, to this mountain, I think it is, and have a vulture uh, pluck out his liver 
uh, every day for all eternity. What does that story tell you about the world of the people who, who wrote that? Knowledge is power and it's to be hoarded. Okay. Knowledge is power, it's to be hoarded. Yeah. What else? What's the lesson of this story? They don't believe that gods are benevolent towards Okay. Gods are not benevolent. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Good point. Yeah. There's a price to pay if you try to take on the power of the gods. Yeah. Some technologies are too dangerous. Some technologies are too dangerous to be handled by human beings. Yeah. What else? So I, I see a couple of things going on in this story. One of them is that um, humans are not the source of science and technology. Right? The technology of fire in this story is not something that humans came up with or discovered or created. It's something that came from some rogue spirit beings. Right? Humans were not in a position to have discovered or invented that themselves. That's one thing I think is very significant. Another is, yeah, this is dangerous and it's not really appropriate for human beings, right? Um, so whoever brings that technology or that knowledge or that science to humanity um, could very well end up like this, right? So if you live in this culture, so this is ancient Greek uh, myth here. Um, if you live in this culture, what do you think about choosing a career in engineering or science or technology? I would not do it. Yeah. You might get your liver plucked out. Yeah. <laughs> A risky proposition, right? That was given, not discovered. Right. Deliberately given. Right. Yeah, Prometheus gives gives them the, the knowledge. They didn't discover it themselves. Um, and Prometheus gets in trouble for it, right? So um, I asked a, a room of Lipscomb engineering students what they thought about this and their answers were were pretty similar to yours they were like this is not a career path i would i would want in this uh in this world right where science uh and technology uh, are strongest uh versions of these that we are aware of so far led to this kind of endeavor right this is not the side of the of the uh, society you want to be on right so um I think this is an interesting story. I don't think it's a unique story. It appears to me that, in fact, lots and lots of ancient cultures had stories very much like this, where the uh, technologies and the sciences that humans have came to them via some kind of rogue spirit being who often ends up in a very bad state for uh, doing, that, uh, doing that action, for sharing that work. In fact, there is a version of this that was well known to early Christians and Jewish people. 
and I might get in trouble for uh, talking about this, um, but uh, the story I'm talking about is the, uh, ap well, the Apocryphal Book of Enoch. So the Apocryphal Book of Enoch claims to be an account from Enoch in Genesis, and it's telling um, Genesis stories from a slightly different angle. Right? It's giving a different perspective on what uh, Genesis says. And so one of those things is an account of where science and technology comes from. And the account in the book of Enoch is that some fallen evil angels have brought technology to humankind and for that they are punished and chained for all eternity. To me that sounds a lot like the Prometheus story. Where does technology come from? Where does science come from? Not from human beings. It comes from bad divinities, bad gods, bad spirits, bad angels, and they get in trouble for bringing it to humans. Here's the thing about the Book of Enoch. Guess which book does not make it into the biblical canon? <laughs> this book is not part of uh, the Jewish or Christian canon. The ancestors of, of contemporary Jews and Christians I think deliberately, um, explicitly, knowingly did not include this in scripture. It was very well known. It was very widespread and they didn't include it. And I think there's a reason for that. I think it's because that's not our story. That's not the story that the authors of the Bible are trying to tell. The story that I think the Judeo-Christian tradition tells starts with God creating and empowering human beings, right? The uh, verses as the comment about the gods being malevolent or against humanity seeking to prevent humans from acquiring power. The story we have goes the other way, right? So Genesis 1, first page of the Bible. Then God said, let us make human beings in our image and likeness. Let them rule over the fish in the sea and the birds in the sky, over the tame animals, over all the earth, over all the small crawling animals on the earth. So God created human beings in his image. And in the image of God, he created them. He created them male and female. God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth and subdue it. And what we see in this story is that God moves from empowering humanity to actually modeling a process for humanity and then leading them into it. So we've talked about in, uh, in the course of this class that God has spent Genesis 1 naming and categorizing and ordering creation to cultivate life. And then God calls humanity in Genesis 2 and Genesis 1, the calling of humanity, he, he calls them to imitate him in creating and cultivating life. And he leads humanity in, he brings the animals to, to Adam to name and categorize and order so that they can, that humans can lead to greater flourishing. They can cultivate and keep the garden and the world beyond it. That's the calling 
of, of humanity as we see it in the Genesis story. And as we've talked about, this is science and technology in their embryonic form, seeking out knowledge of God's creation and then seeking to use that knowledge to order the world to greater flourishing of life. As a result, um, in the Genesis story, rather than technology and science coming from um, deities or spirit beings or something like that, it comes from individual humans who are named. Uh, Jabel, who lives in tents and raises livestock, who brings that kind of innovation into the world. Jubal, who is the father of all who play stringed instruments and pipes. Tubal Cain, who for, is the father of all who forge uh, tools out of bronze and iron. It names the inventors and innovators of the ancient world. Right? And, and when we do have um, spirit beings involved, the spirit is actually the Holy Spirit. So in Exodus, we see this in the construction of the tabernacle. We've talked about this passage. This is where um, the pattern and the plan for the tabernacle is being laid out. And so it says, Moses said to the Israelites, See, the Lord has chosen Bezalel, son of Uri, the son of Hur, the, of the tribe of Judah, and he has filled him with the Spirit of God, with wisdom, with understanding, with knowledge, and with all kinds of skills, to make artistic designs for work in gold, silver, and bronze, to cut and set stones, to work in wood, and to engage all kinds of artistic crafts. And he has given both him and Aholiab, son of Ahizamak, of the tribe of Dan, the ability to teach others. He has filled them with skill to do all kinds of work as engravers, designers, embroiderers in blue, purple and scarlet yarn, and fine linen and weavers, all of them skilled workers and designers. The Spirit of God fills and gifts people for scientific, technological, artistic, craft skill that they can then learn those techniques and pass them on to others. And it names them as people who are specially blessed and called by God. Choosing a career as a scientist, an engineer, a technologist, in this story looks a lot different than in the other story. Michael, yeah. Back to that other, Which back one? To that one. Right. Something interesting in there is that uh, there were many, many tools made out of stone before the bronze started. Yeah. That's interesting that that was left out. Right. There, the Genesis is interested in the latest technology in this case, right? Like not the, not the earliest technology. A long period before iron was ever One of the, I think the biggest uh, stories for us in Genesis, of course, is the um, story of the largest technological project the ancient world could have ever imagined, which we call the story of Noah's Ark, right? <coughs> and this story, I think, is, is really profound. This is a, a story where um, the world has become corrupted, and the way that God sets about to redeem and renew um, creation and humanity itself is he calls a human to use his technological skills to partner in the work of God, right? And just like um, God brings the animals to Adam to name, God brings the animals to Noah to bless and to care for and to, up, to, to protect and to cultivate. Right? And when Noah emerges from 
um, the ark, God reiterates the Genesis 1 blessing. As if to say, this is humanity as I intended. Humanity using its technical, scientific knowledge and skill to participate in the work of God, caring for, cultivating life, and helping to heal and uplift creation. That is what God wants humanity to be doing and has intended for them to do since the beginning. That's the story that Genesis is telling us. Um, So... I think this is, yeah, I think this is a very different story. Yeah. So, I understand what you just said. So, people that are in science and engineering and, and are anti-God, are they also called by God for science and stuff like that? Can they deny his existence, deny who he is right. and stuff like that? Yeah, um, there's a lot there. Uh, so, one of the things that I think... Um, we try to talk about uh, in the course of, of this semester is is the scriptures that talk about science, uh, God's knowledge in creation as a kind of universal revelation, right? It's there available for all. So this is what we see in Psalm 19. The heavens declare the glory of God. Uh, it's for everyone to observe. It's a kind of evangelism, right? God is putting this out there so that people can see that knowledge and come to understand um, him better. That's what we see in Romans 1, where Paul talks about um, these things being apparent in creation. It's what we see in Acts 14, where they speak to um, the pagan world and they say, uh, look at what God has done in creating this this, uh, world for you. Um, So I I think science is part of what Um, all human cultures do and what all humans have access to Um, I do think that when we recognize the calling of God and who we are in the image of God we have a capacity to pursue science in a deeper way and a a way where we can actually use that knowledge um, uh, maybe for larger purposes um, so let's talk about that because there's a maybe a fly in this ointment and um, several of you have raised questions about uh, this story so what's going on here machine learning machine learning there you go I like it This is intended to depict the Tower of Babel, right? Um, What's the problem with this tower? Foundation doesn't look level. There you go. (laughs) That's probably the first thing, yeah. Trying to bring glory to the wrong. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Want to use it for their own power? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. This is probably, I think this is a Renaissance era depiction. <laughs> they were missing a few details, yeah.
talking about Artemis too just a few minutes ago. I I know the, um, the the chief engineer on the third stage, the one that you, you got a picture of that was going away from yeah. Earth. Yeah. And he said that, um, and there's several people of faith working on that project. Mm -hmm. And he's he's a person of faith. And he he said they sit around sometimes talking mm. and asking themselves. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. The basic flaw is they could never reach heaven, no matter how tall they made it. Sure. Yeah. I mean that was uh, so. I think that the, it has to be that uh, they were not diversifying. The main evil here, they were not following his command to diversify and fill the earth. Okay. Yeah. Um, let's think about this a second. I don't know how tall the Tower of Babel was, but uh, we're told what material it's made out of, right? I think it's uh, bricks and tar, right? Somebody correct me on that. I think we know kind of the limit of what kinds uh, of how high you could get with that, right? It's not super tall. Do we have buildings that are taller than that now? Yeah. I'm pretty sure we do. We have much better technology for constructing things. I'm pretty sure we have much higher buildings in our world. Um, so is the height of this the problem? Intense, okay. Yeah, I think that's right. I don't think the height's the problem. Um, I don't think building a tower is a problem, right? I think, yeah, I think you're... Uh, you've hit it. It's the intent. In fact, um, uh, we've mentioned some of the intent. What would you What would you say the intent of this project is? To be like God. Okay. It's, it's the idea of being like God on their terms. The command was to spread out, and they said, "No, let's not spread out. Let's make a name for ourselves, and let's all stick together." So it's directly oppositional to what the command was. This is just straight up, you know, your plan's dumb. We're going to do my plan. Yeah, I think, I think actually the text is, is, um, goes through and tells us um, pretty explicitly. So when Noah came out of the ark, as we, as we already saw, right, God reiterates the Genesis 1 promise and blessing and calling. God blessed Noah and his sons, saying to them, Be fruitful and increase in number and fill the earth. That's part of the project. That's part of the human project. There, Genesis 1, you're going to fill the earth so that you can, what? Explore, cultivate, like all of these things. This is your job. This is what humanity is here for. To cultivate, to tend, to keep all the earth. And so to do that, you have to fill the earth. So... What do the Babelites think? They say, come let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Otherwise, we will be scattered over the face of the whole earth. They are explicitly not in favor of what God wants to do with humanity. They are thinking, if we build a tower that's so great that nothing else can compare, no one will ever leave. Right? We can have our centralized power system here and we can make sure that we don't scatter over the face of the whole earth 
we maintain our system and order uh, the way we want it to be, right? Now, any Jew uh, reading this story, right, the name Babel is going to rhyme to them with the name Babylon, and they're going to think about that kind of tyrannical power. Right, so this is um, part of what uh, is, is going on in this story, right? So what happens? When, when they say this, they start building their tower, God comes down and sees it. He says everything, that, their plans are going to work. Uh, this is going to be bad news, right? So what does God do? I've heard a lot of people tell this story and they say, then God destroys the tower. That's not in the Bible. God doesn't destroy the tower. God doesn't forbid them from making new towers, right? What does God do? Confuses them. Confuses them. Yeah. He... Uh, introduces new languages, right? He diversifies their languages so they can't um, communicate and coordinate in the way that they've been doing. And so what's the result of, of this action? Again, God hasn't destroyed their tower. God hasn't told them to stop making towers. He's just introduced diversity into humanity. And as a result, um, from there, the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth, right? So this is the, the story. God told them to, to fill the earth. They said, we don't want to fill the earth. God introduces diversity to disrupt this project, so they go and scatter over the face of the whole earth. That's the story. Because God wants humanity to fill the earth and do this work of cultivating life, and they're trying to stop humanity from actually growing into the vision that God has intended. Does that make sense? Any, any comments, questions, criticisms of this reading? Yeah. Um, I'm not sure if I'm totally convinced that the intent is the problem. It, it could be. Okay. And I, and I understand what you're, what, how the text you're highlighting here. And that's a really good argument. But there, there could also be an argument for, uh, similar to the engineers on the Artemis sitting around talking about, are, are we doing this for the right intent? Yeah. It's very possible that the city engineers um, who were building that tower were trying to do that so that humans could flourish and be together, drawn together in community, and the reality is that humans do better when we're together, and so, yeah. I, I don't know, I, anyway, it, it's a possible argument. However, I would also say, yeah. um, I think what's different in, in the Prometheus story, which can stand alone as the gods are diminishing humans' ability to flourish, yeah. um, e even if that's true about this story, uh, we have another story that comes uh, in the New Testament, and maybe you're getting to this, and I don't want to steal your Go, go for it. Um, uh, so on the day of Pentecost, the gifts of, of tongues are poured out on the people, and people are, mm -hmm. uh, it, it's the undoing of, of this story. Mm -hmm. So on the day of Pentecost, people are brought back together and are able to communicate with one another, and um, even though they're spread out geographically across the whole earth, they have a new commonality in Christ and the gifts of the Spirit. So I think there's a trajectory yeah. where God may have slowed humans down here in Genesis a little bit, uh, but when we get to Acts, um, it seems like there's a new trajectory and new plan for things to flourish uh, where we can interact with each other. Yeah. Uh, to me, I see that it's a deeper theological, perhaps, meaning of the story of Babel. The tension between two. Uh, fear 
Yeah, fear and faith, inclusivity and exclusivity. Yeah, so the, the comments we've, we've had here suggest, okay, so the, the people uh, of Babel um, presumably do have some kind of motivation that, like, they want to feel safe, right? They want to feel, um, feel in a good place where they can flourish. I think that's, uh, that's, uh, that's true. Um, the, I think the, the story of Genesis actually deals a lot with city builders, right? And in Genesis, cities are a really problematic thing. Right? Cain builds the first city uh, after he murders someone. Why? Because he needs protection or he feels the need for protection. He's afraid. He realizes, oh, just like I murdered someone, somebody could murder me. I need to build some place that will keep that from happening. And so I think this is what we see um, in this, the book of Genesis is people building cities out of fear. I think the story of Genesis, the arc of it, is to get to this question of like, well, how do we build a city that's not based on fear, that's based on faith, that's not based on just murder and protection and, and violence to keep you know, people out and so forth. That's the, the dichotomy between Cain's city and Abraham's city, right? And yeah, comment over here. Yeah, I just went to the text because I had an idea that there was something else in here. I read it. Um, the Lord said, if there's one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. Yeah. Come let us go down and confuse their language so they will not understand each other. Yeah. So, my thinking was along the same lines as you is it was kind of a tangent off of God's plan that they wanted to jump ahead several squares on the board, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, build a vast city when God was mm-hmm. thinking, I really need to knock them, knock them down a few pegs here and put them <laughs> back on track. Yeah. And the, the thought that it's kind of just because Right. He says nothing will be impossible for us because he made nothing impossible for us. Right. That's the story, <laughs> is uh, which is interesting. Uh, yeah. I was going to make that same comment. How does that factor in? Is God afraid, or you know, it's right. like the Prometheus thing? Where right. Like, Wait a minute. There's too much. There's too much. Too much time. Yeah. So I yeah.
chance to work with God as he is bringing his kingdom to earth, which is yeah. what he wants for us to do. And when we're taking care of the earth, taking care of one another, um, that's how we participate in that. And if we are only all together hoarding that, then we don't. Yeah. Yeah. So um, I, I want to touch on what what Eric said here, because I think this is true. So I think God's answer to, to tyranny, this is how I read it uh, um, in Scripture, is diversity. God's like, we to prevent a tyranny where something centralizes and becomes a static uh, society, we're going to introduce diversity so that humans do have to spread out and do have to decentralize their power. That does limit us to some extent. And I think this is um, an example of where something that initially looks like uh, a curse is actually uh, a blessing of God. And so we see, as Eric was pointing out, in the day of Pentecost, right, the Spirit is poured out, and these people who are sent out into all the earth are given the capacity to communicate in all these different tongues. Right? They're given the capacity to communicate across all of these languages and to coordinate. And they do this not by erasing that diversity that was introduced into the human species, but actually bringing it together and uniting it in the Spirit of God. Right? The Spirit of God allows for a larger kind of coordination and cooperation across the world, across cultures, across nations than would exist otherwise. I think that is a really profound aspect of this. And, we, and the question was raised about like, what is the, the role of, of people of faith in um, the shaping and pursuing of this science? I think this is ultimately the thing. The story that we have at the very end of scripture, a story where the New Jerusalem descends from heaven to earth, that city is pictured as biological, technological, ecological, anthropological, right? It's a human city. It's not, um, it's not absent of human-created artifacts. In fact, the text tells us all the glory of the nations is brought into it. Everything that humans have created that is worthwhile and valuable is ultimately carried into the city of God and becomes part of God's kingdom. And who brings it in? I think it's the people of God, empowered by the Spirit of God, who are able to bring those things in and integrate them and make them part of a healing whole. I think that's what the Spirit allows us to do, is to bring all of the glory and creation and innovation of humanity and actually integrate it into something that does work 
for the good, works for the purposes of God um, in a way that would be impossible without God's spirit and without God's people. And so this is, um, I know we're out of time. This is the, the story we've uh, told in this uh, class, that science is a divine calling. Science was a religious mission. Science was shaped by faith. Science is a grace of God. Science needs faith. Or to put it in other terms, science is by grace. Science is through faith. And science is for the work of God. And that's where I think Thank you so much for being with us. Yeah. Thank you so much for being with us over the course of this. Yeah.